Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Travel and Tourism Podcast, my first season. Very, very excited today. My guest is the author of three internationally best-selling books, and she's a publisher and editor of the world's most popular English-language magazine about France with about 2.7 million readers per issue. She's also the editor of the Good Life France website, a travel writer, and a podcaster. Born in London, she now lives in the middle of nowhere rural northern France with her husband and an extended family of furry and feathered creatures. You can find her books on Amazon and in all bookshops online. Her books are titled My Good Life in France, My Four Seasons in France, and Toujours la France. I read her first book, I loved it, and we will talk about that, the magazine, her podcast called The Good Life France, and a whole lot more today. Please help me welcome author and podcaster Janine Marsh. Janine, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Greg. Thanks very much for inviting me on your show. Uh, it's a it's a hot day here in France. We're we're about to hit summer, but summer hit us early in the north. Unusually, normally rains here, but um, we've had four weeks of sunshine. So, and I'm bricklaying today, so I'm actually quite glad to stop and talk to you. <laughs> thank you, thank you for getting me out of it. <laughs> yes, since I've since I've read your book, I know probably by now you're probably a master at everything right i'm guessing because uh, you started with not a not a lot of knowledge if i understand of how to do uh, construction and renovation but now you're probably a pro right well i wouldn't say i was a pro but i mean i used to work in a bank so not exactly diy material but you know when you live in the middle of france doing of nowhere in france not near shops and uh lack of builders to a certain extent you learn to do everything yourself and actually it's been really good fun so yeah i'm enjoying it really I also worked in a bank and worked with the French for 10 years. So that's why your story, you know, appealed to me so much. So if you wouldn't mind telling our, our listeners, how did you find your, your dream house, you know, without really wanting to find it? Like you're from London, you're visiting France. What, what happened that day? Quite a long story, hence three books. But in a nutshell, my mum died very sadly. And my dad was very bitter and angry about losing her because she'd only been retired for six months. And, um, he started drinking whiskey to drown his sorrows. And I got this idea into my head that it would be better for him to drink wine. So we lived in London, not very far from Dover. You know, the UK is not a big country. So about an hour's drive to Dover, where we then hopped on a ferry across the English Channel, about an hour and a half. We arrived at the port town of Calais in the far north of France. This was my dad and me and my husband, Mark. It was a really horrible day. It was February. It, it was freezing cold. It was sleety. It was foggy. And we kind of, you know, got on this ferry and watched the Dover cliff white cliffs of Dover fade into the distance and um, we arrived in Calais still really cold and miserable bought our wine and my dad said I'll treat you to lunch so we drove for about an hour inland away from the cold coastal wind we arrived at a pretty little town everything was shut we were too late you know I don't know if you know but in France they're kind of weird about lunchtime lunch is 12 till 2 so if you arrive at quarter to 2 it's too late to cook for you and they just say no so no lunch for us and we were smooching around this town miserable looking in a looking in the windows of the shops and we looked into the the window of an estate agent you know a property agent and the property agent saw our miserable faces and he also saw an opportunity so he invited us in for coffee we were in there and he was saying oh you know how much money have you got and do you want to buy a french house and i was like no i, I was adamant you know we, we don't have any money and we don't want to buy a french house but he gave us his free cheapest properties and we had nothing else to do. So we went and looked at them 
And the first one was like, have you ever seen Dexter, you know, the serial killer with his den all wrapped up in plastic? Well, the first house had lino on the walls, the ceilings, the floors, the back of the doors, looked like a serial killer's den. So we're like, nope, get back in the car. Looked at the second one and people came out of their houses to stare at us. So I said, no, we're not even looking at this one. Get back in the car. Got to the third one and it was horrible. It looked like a prison. It had like big grey concrete walls around it in a village with absolutely nothing. No cafes, no bars, no no people, no sign of life. So I just got out to look over the gate and my dad was moaning in the car. He's like, just go home. It's cold. It's miserable. This is horrible, this house. And then the front door opened and a man came out. And he was English, like in the middle of nowhere in France. He said, can I help you? So I just said, you know, you know, we're just having a quick look. Someone just gave us the details of your house. And he said, oh, it's not mine. It's my daughter's. I just popped in to mop up the leaking floors. And my dad was sniggering in the car. But he said, you know, do you want a cup of tea? So I said, yes, please. And my dad and my husband were really moaning because they didn't want to. They wanted to go home. And we went in and it was horrible. To, you know, to this day, I look back and I think, why did I do it? Because I walked in and my feet were <laughs> across the floor. It was so wet. There was water streaming through the roof. You could see that you could see the sky through the roof. The windows were rattling. There were corrugated iron doors. It was an old barn and they were flapping in the wind. And it was it was horrible. There's no doubt about it. But we stood in the kitchen and my dad was my dad was, he was a builder and he was walking around going, oh, this is rubbish. This is terrible. This is, oh, this is going to fall down. He was just moaning, especially when he saw the uh, the shower on the landing, not in a room, just plonked on the stairs. But I stood there and I looked out of the window at the garden and it was a big garden to me anyway, coming from suburban London. You know, we had a yard the, the size of a pantry and this garden was an acre of land. And in the back, in, in the distance, I could see a church spire and there were hills all around. I didn't know it then, but this was called the Seven Valleys because it's very hilly. As I stood there, it suddenly stopped raining and sleeting and this beam of sunlight came through the clouds and then I could hear ducks quacking and it sounded like they were laughing and the church bells rang. And honestly, it was like, the French call it a coupe de food, like, you know, a bolt of lightning, love at first sight. And that was it. I was completely and utterly smitten. And I looked at my husband with that look on my face, like, I love this. He was shaking his head going, no, no. But I'm afraid I, I said to the man, I'll buy it. I'll have your house there. And then that was it. It was very cheap, mind you. It had 21 rooms. It was enormous, an acre of land, and it cost less than one of Kim Kardashian's designer handbags. So, you know, that's my excuse. Sorry, Greg, a long answer. Oh, no, that's, <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> you said 21 rooms? Yes. Yeah, I know. It, it started off, it was originally a cow barn. So it's about 400-year-old cow barn made with Flintstones, local Flintstones. It's a very flinty area. These original farmers had built this one room downstairs where the cows lived and there was a room upstairs where the people lived and it was lined with it was still there the, we call it wattle and daubin in the uk it's like a mix of straw and mud and cow dung which slathered all over the walls all over the ceiling all over the floor it's like an early form of insulation yeah that was fun getting out so it was just two rooms but over over hundreds of years you know, whoever lived there successively added on rooms more and more. And it's on a hill as well. So they're all different levels. And some were, some were big, some were small. It, it was a hovel, frankly, an absolute hovel. But I don't know, maybe maybe I just had a bit of a vision of what it could look like. And, you know, it does pretty much look like I, I hoped it would now because we're nearly 20 years in and we're still renovating, but it looks a hell of a lot better now. 
Yeah, this four century old house it mystifies me. The oldest house I've been to here in Montreal is a hundred years old. And I thought that was something. So it's <laughs> it's really hard for me to fathom an extra three hundred years on top of that. Wow. Yeah, it doesn't feel that old to me. I mean, there's some old beams in there, and obviously the Flintstones are old, but it looks quite modern now. But, you know, around where I am in Calais, yeah, Agincourt, I don't know if you've heard of that, but the Great Battle of Agincourt, very, you know, to the English, this was one of the greatest battles ever where we, you know, beat the French. Sorry about that. I don't consider myself British anymore, by the way. I consider myself European, so don't moan at me for saying that. But yeah, the British or the English beat the French. And um, so in the UK, it's a really famous battle. And it's literally down the road from where I am. And that was that was 14, 15, I think. So, you know, a long time ago. There's so much history here. Two world wars were largely fought on the soil of this area. Julius Caesar launched his um, invasion of, the, of England from here. Napoleon mustered his armies on the coast here ready to invade England never did happen but you know so much history and so ancient it's incredible really and the would you call it the town where you live like what's the population of the town or area where you live <laughs> well I never say the name of my town because it's really oh. really tough. oh no oh no I don't I don't want the name I just do you call it a town <laughs> Well, the reason is because my neighbours are convinced that I'm like Peter Mayo and that, Pe and you know, if anyone finds out where I live, they're going to come flocking here to see it. I assure them that is never going to happen. I'm not, you know, I'm not famous like Peter Mayo and this is not Provence. But anyway, so I promise them I don't tell anyone. But it's a tiny village near a town called Montreux-sur-Mer which is a very pretty walled town with a citadel and big ramparts where Victor Hugo went with his mistress one afternoon in 1837, I think it was. And he saw all these things like a cart falling over and a woman coming from a church crying. And on the back of that one afternoon, he wrote Les Miserables. He was completely inspired by this area. But my village is tiny, 150 people and a thousand cows. That's what they say about this place. Okay. Yes. <laughs> well, I loved how, like in the book, you describe getting used to your neighbors, you know, some friendly, some nosy, some not, you know, I loved page 110, where you talk about the famous French to cheek kiss, because I also had the same reaction when this happened to me, because British don't really kiss or hug when they greet each other, right? Not really. A shake hands, maybe, or nod to each other. You know, all right. We say all right and nod. The French don't hug at all. They, the, hugs are more sort of intimate to the French. So like Americans love to hug. But if you're American and you try and hug a French person, they're just going to think you're a bit weird, I'm afraid. But kissing, yeah, they have no problem with kissing. Even, even like if you work in an office and you go in in the morning, colleagues kiss each other, which I can't get used to when I go to meetings in France. I really can't. But the whole kissing thing, I, you know, I really like it now. It took me a while to get used to because we're a bit aloof, us Brits. But now I kiss my neighbours with abandon. Two kisses here. First, I, to my left first and then to the right. But it does depend on where you go. Like Corsica, I think they do four kisses. Brit some parts of Brittany, they do three kisses. Sometimes they go to the right. So I just, if someone comes towards me, I just watch which side they're lunging for and then I know which way to go. But yeah, I, I, quite, I quite like the whole kissing thing funny enough not everybody in France loves loves to do it in the office especially and after Covid when of course we weren't allowed to kiss at all quite a lot of my French friends just dropped the whole thing so they they subtly stopped kissing each other at work <laughs> which I find quite hilarious so. 
Yeah, that would be bizarre if this happened at work. I mean, I spent 10 years with the French. So when it first happened to me, like so many, when I started in Club Med, so many men were coming up to me on New Year's Eve to kiss me. And I was like, what What do I do? You know, I've never had that happen. But after 10 years, yes, you get, you get accustomed to it. You get used to it. <laughs> and, and another thing I liked is when you were exploring your village, it was the queue or or lack thereof in France. So can you explain when 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 that happened when you realized people weren't lining up in orderly manners i i would say the french don't really believe in queuing at all <laughs> it's just not in their psyche so it's not that they actually well they do push in frankly yes they do but they also are, are just like quite anarchic about queuing so the my real taste of this was when we went to a flea market in a local town and they had a big marquee up a big tent and there there was a like a barbecue outside and they had a, a spit, you know, a pig on a spit, a suckling pig. And we all went into this marquee and we sat down and they served us with a cocktail while they were cooking the pig. And then unfortunately the barbecue caught fire. So they had to, we, had, we all had to evacuate the tent in case the tent burnt down. And then the pompiers arrived and put the fire out and they salvaged what was left of the pig. And then we were all allowed back in again. They called out, you know, come and get your, come and get your food. And there was just like this, it was like, rugby people were rugby tackling each other to try and get to the front and my neighbors were there john claude and his wife Josiane, and they they were i mean my poor husband he's six foot four so he's quite tall i'm really short by the way i'm under five foot so we look a bit odd together but you know memorable and my neighbors are quite short as well and they were kind of using my husband as a battering ram to push him to the front so that he could get served first and they could all get served behind him and i did i was thinking to myself god we hadn't been here very long then. And I thought, blimey, the French are a bit full on, aren't they? And uh, I've never changed that attitude. They are a bit full on. I think the French saying is life is too short to queue. There you go. <laughs> yeah, this, this, I didn't, this, I didn't experience in France, but in Israel, in fact, when it, same thing would happen to me, people brush by me, elbow and then but I was actually given free things once I had to buy watch batteries and a band and pins and the guy gave them to me free. I go, what's this? Why are you giving it to me free? He goes, because you waited. <laughs> you were so accustomed <laughs> to people not barging in, you know, so I was getting free things just from being a patient Canadian boy, you know. Wow. That never yeah. happened to me. Uh, French <laughs> people, give me free things. IQ. <laughs> <laughs> Now, okay, we mentioned at the intro, you, I'm wondering how many animals you're currently have or feeding. Do you know how many you have? Uh, well, we, we have two one-year-old Labradors, Roger and Re uh, Reggie and Ronnie Cray, and we have um, two 10-week-old Australian Shepherd Pup twins, Nina and Lady. We have eight cats. I won't go through all the names. We'll be here all day. Eight cats, four geese, seven ducks, 32 chickens, a dove called Doris with a broken wing, and a rescue hedgehog called Charlie. So, so far. <laughs> okay. So this is what I wonder about because I see all these beautiful interspecies relationships on, on TikTok and all these videos of animals that shouldn't be friends. So how does everyone get along like on your, on your, on your farm? Like how do, do there, are there occasional spats and then, then it's set? Like, how does that work? Well, I have to say um, at the moment, Nina and Lady, the, the little pups, the 10 week olds, they are obsessed with chasing the cats and the cats are very much like that. Don't impress me much. So okay. <laughs> yeah, they're not, they're not really into it, but the Labradors, absolutely. They are besotted with their new baby sisters. They love them. And we're, we're doing supervised playtime because the Labradors are quite big at a year old and the, the girls are quite small and the girls also 
absolutely love the chickens they fortunately they can't get in the pen they're just a little bit too big now they could get through the fence at first but they rapidly grew and so now they just sit at the edge of the chicken pens entranced watching the chickens but yeah by and large i would say they all get on really really well together there's not many fights sometimes the cats fall out with each other you know at the end of the day they in this house it's um love me love my animals that's it before reading your book, I had never heard the term Nagasaki cockerel. Can you, can you just tell our listeners what a Nagasaki cockerel is? <laughs> it's quite, it's actually, is a twist to this story that you don't know because it's not in the book. But a few years ago, we were at a flea market and we bought a cockerel. He was very, very beautiful, really colorful feathers and quite small. And the people selling him said, he's a Nagasaki cock, so Nagasaki cockerel, a Japanese. And I didn't want any more birds because we have. That, I think that was the year that 52 ducklings were born and I had to rehouse them all to people that wouldn't eat them because I was, I'd had enough of birds that year. And I said, no, no more birds. And my husband's like, oh, he's Japanese and he's so pretty. So I gave in in the end. The people put him in a box and they were saying, oh, he's a bit nervous, a little bit nervous, uh, but he'll calm down. And then they were taping this box up like there was a devil in it or something and he would never be allowed out. And I thought, that's a bit weird. And then I heard, you know, excuse my French, but I heard the fr- the husband say to his wife, be careful, that one is a right bastard. And I thought, oh no, he, I must have misheard because he looked like quite a nice little cockerel. But then as we carried him through the streets of this little village where they had the flea market, people were staring at us and this thing was going mental in the box. He was kicking, he was scratching, he was headbutting the side, he was shrieking at the top of his voice. He turned out to be a complete maniac cockerel. He ran away as soon as we got him home. They had to run around the field in the treading in cow pats at the bottom of the garden, getting him back. In the end, he did calm down enough to not leave but he refused to stay in the pen. He was like Houdini. He just kept climbing over the sides and getting out. And it was only years later that I discovered he wasn't a Nagasaki chicken at all. I don't actually know what he was, but he definitely weren't a Nagasaki cockerel. But anyway, his name was uh, Nagasaki after the Ken. We called him Kendo Nagasaki after that because um, there was a famous British wrestler called that. So to us, he, he remains a Nagasaki chicken, a Nagasaki cockerel, but he wasn't really. Sorry, Greg. Okay, no problem. I hope no that doesn't problem. upset you. <laughs> no, no, no. No, because we're coming up to my my favorite part of your your book. The, to me, this is absurdly funny. So I'm currently watching the Tour de France documentary on Netflix called, you know, Tour de France Unchained. And there was a part you write where the Tour de France actually, you know, came by, came by yeah. your village. And what I didn't know was that the day was ruined because a local bakery was closed. Can you explain and and, and there's actually a law about like can you just explain this in a nutshell? Why <laughs> By even though the Tour de France was coming by, the day was ruined because a local bakery was closed. Well, I mean, the Tour de France, they, they say it's the greatest sporting event on earth. And it is actually, I think, I read somewhere it's watched by something like 1.7 billion people around the world. And for once in my tiny little corner of rural northern France, which is quite hard to say, isn't it, Greg? Um, yes. Yeah. The, the Tour de France came through a local village called Aculier, which is just down the road from us. And so... People from miles around flocked to this village to to see the stars come by and the caravan because before the, the cyclists come by, you have this huge, it's like a circus caravan type thing with loads and loads of vans that are decorated and they throw gifts to the crowds and there's music and it's just, it's crazy. It lasts about an hour and it goes, you know, it's car after car and van after van and they throw bottles of water and someone got hit on the head and everyone was laughing and it was absolutely brilliant. And then after that, the cyclists come through and 
honestly, it's like less than a minute. They're so fast. They come down the hill, they go through the village and they're off. That's it. It's over. And it, when it comes to your village, it's so memorable. We know that the, camp, the helicopters are up there and that we're all waving to the helicopter to see if anyone can see us on television. But for most of my neighbours, that the memory of that day is not all these marvellous things. It's the fact that the local boulangerie ran out of bread because, because the French are obsessed with their bread. 98% of French people eat bread on a daily basis. And the baker, the poor baker, he'd been up. I don't think he'd even been to bed the night before. He'd made so much bread to accommodate all these people that came to the village. But come the afternoon, he had to close early because he'd run out of bread. And he was quite happy because he got to see the, you know, the cyclists and the whole Tour de France thing. But everyone else moaned so much. And if you ask anyone around here, what do you remember about the day the Tour de France came to our village? They'll just say, ran out of bread. <laughs> it's, just, it's just mad, isn't it? Uh, yes. And I, I didn't know, I think since, what, 1790, bakers are required to declare their holidays to the mayor. Is this true? Well, it was true until about two or three years ago. And actually, nearly everyone still does it. So because bread is so important. So if our local boulangerie closes, he will tell the local mayor and he will also notify other boulangeries and he will put signs up for weeks ahead so that we all know go and get your bread somewhere else so they all work together to make sure that we can still have our bread and they've started a new thing in the last year as well they've got bread machines <laughs> so in the next village along from us they actually have it's truly bizarre on the village green opposite the lovely local sh chateau in a beautiful little village in the middle of nowhere there is now a big red machine that you can put money on and get a loaf of bread out of bizarre but yeah but i have your bread probably the only place i know of in the world that, that must do this but that, that's amazing <laughs> yep i'd like to talk about your your website now if that's okay yeah, uh, yeah. Your, your website has so much information uh, properties in france regions in france culture and language holidays things to do living in france so did your your magazine start when you made your or the magazine came first and then you put it all on one including your podcast like what, what, um, what came first well what came first was the website because we we were renovating as we still are 19 years in we were renovating putting in windows it was winter and my my friends thought it was hilarious because i'd broken a finger you know doing some diy and i'd broken two toes where i dropped a block on my foot so they were constantly ringing up to find out oh what's you know i was talking about my neighbors they keep ringing up every night you know what's happened now what's happened now and my husband said look we've got to get on with this work i'm going to build you a website and you can just put on there you know you can blog what's happening and then we can get on with our work so i said okay thank you darling so he built me a website and i was pretty much writing for like 25 people i thought friends family and six months later my husband looked at the website statistics and he said oh 60,000 people are reading what you're writing I was like, wow that's amazing could not believe it so I carried on writing and then it got up to a, a million people a month and it just kept growing and growing and I found that I had a real penchant for writing I, I was like Forrest Gump once I started I couldn't stop and I just love writing and then I wanted to write longer articles so typically posts on a website are quite short because, you know, it's quite hard to read on the website. It's a different science. I wanted to write longer articles. So after a couple of years, I started a magazine uh, where I could write long form articles and put in more pictures and just a, like a, a different approach to information. And now I, I checked this morning, it's like two, 2.8 million readers per issue on average. I mean, it's honestly, it's been such a surprise to me. I mean, I, I hope people enjoy it because 
they get that I really love what I do and that that comes across. And also, I mean, I'm really lucky. I've got a lot of friends who are, you know, great travel writers. They're some of the best in the world. And I have a great designer on the magazine. So it's it's really, it's a, it started as a passion project, but now it, it's a, a full on job to do, to do the website and the magazine. And I'm, I've made loads and loads of friends from doing it. And one of them is a bloke called Ollie. Olivier Geoffrey and that's how the podcast came about Olivier is a radio producer he's French he lives in London he wrote to me one day and said oh you know you haven't written anything about French music uh, and I didn't know much about French music so he taught me about Francoise Hardy and Charles Trenet and like all of the great French people because he loves vintage music and then and we got on really well together and he, last year he said to me why don't we do a podcast show together and uh, so we did uh, and it just we did the first one and we, you know, I talked about my life and why I'm here. And Ollie talked about his radio show and thousands of people listened in. We were really, really astonished. And uh, now we're about 20 episodes in and we've had some great guests. We had a bloke called Olivier Giraud. Not everyone's called Olivier in France, by the by the way, it just sounds like it. Um, he's a, Olivier Giraud is a comedian in France, in Paris. He's got a one-man show called How to Be a Parisian in One Hour. And we interviewed him. And honestly, he was so hilarious. It just made me laugh the whole way through. So I'm not going to talk about it. You have to listen to it. Yeah, we talk about cheese and castles and weird superstitions and all, all sorts of things. And Ollie has quite a fan club now because he's got a great voice. You know, my name is Olivier Giraud from France he's like that I don't get any emails about my voice by the way typical but no uh, the podcast is just well we've just been astonished really that there are so many thousands of people listening in and uh, and we love it so next it's video so we're working Olivier and I are now working with a professional videographer and we're going to start doing videos of France next great well, I just had a quick question. Yes, on, on your podcast, Olivier is described as a vintage French music expert. I'm wondering, how does one become that? Is it just because of his love of vintage French music? or Yeah, Oli, he just, he just loves 40s and 50s and 60s music. He loves all music, but especially that era. Edith Piaf, he, you know, Serge Gainsbourg, he loves what it's called Paris, uh, chanson they, there's a specific genre of music in france which i think is probably quite unique to france so it's they're called chansons which if you translate it just means songs but in france it means vintage songs that particular era so yeah so his radio show is called paris chanson.fr and you can get it online and uh, he just plays all those great classics and he, he's like my music mentor now so yeah I listened to the uh, Olivier Giraud's episode because I love how you were, and you, so many interesting things like, is it true that all French were black, all black? And <laughs> the, part, the part I loved was, I think he was able to spot who the French French were. He goes, oh, because those people were smiling. They're not French. And I'm like, oh my God, that is so funny. Uh, he also had on author Stephen Clark, uh, A Year in the Merit, right? He wrote history books and had yes. his experience in France. And that's what I like about your podcast because- because I was wondering why Olivier had such a command of the English language, but he knew all the expressions. And then turns out he's been living in London for what, 10 or 20 years? And and, yeah. you, and you've been living in France. So I thought this is a perfect pairing, right? We always say we're like Entente Cordiale upside down. So um, Ollie, Ollie says that I'm more French than he is now. And I, I think he's more British than I am now. So 
we kind of we know each other's world almost as well as the other one does it you know so we we um i think it just really works well he gets it and i get it and somehow it just twins perfectly for us so yeah and also he's hilarious he says things like you know one podcast i said paris is the most popular city in the world and he says and beyond and i say to him what do you mean and beyond what is beyond the universe well yes if there was if there were aliens in there were aliens in the universe then they would love paris too he's he just comes out with all these quirky sayings and he, he just <laughs> makes me laugh and i know he makes everyone else laugh as well so yeah he's no, great uh, no it's a great podcast and uh we'll put your you know the link to your website so thank which, you which, which has all the you know all the information they would need and we can't wait to see the videos that you guys are going to show us Oh, one last thing. Yeah, Janine. So people think Janine, I know it's a French name here in Montreal and in France, but in actuality, were you named after a very famous French actress or anything? No, no. I was named after a horse. My dad. (laughs) (laughs) Horse, yes. My dad was um, a gambler. I mean, you know, he would, my dad dad would gamble on anything, but mostly horses and greyhounds, which were very popular at the time in the UK, greyhound racing. And the day I was born, my poor mum was in hospital in London, giving birth to me, heaving away. My dad went racing at Brighton, as men did in those days. And he won money on a horse called Janine. So when he eventually came to see my mum in hospital with the new baby, which he didn't rush, by the way. But he eventually turned up and he said, and my mum thrust me into his arms. And she said, oh, we're going to call her Ethel after my favourite auntie. And my dad said, no, we're not. We're going to call her Janine. She'll be a lucky filly. So thanks, Dad, because I much prefer Janine to Ethel. So, yeah, I think that always gave me a bit of a connection with, with France right from birth, because filly is a female horse, but it's also from the French word for a girl. So that connection's always there. Also being a Cockney, as I am, born within the sound of Bow Bells, a church of Bow was built by William the Conqueror's French archbishop. So there was a connection there. When I look back, you know, even from early days, although I never intended to live in France, I never even dreamed of it until that fateful day when we came to buy wine. I guess that it's always been kind of in my path a little bit of fate there in the background well you know i lived in born and raised in montreal my whole life i just made the connection now between philly and fee oh boy i feel dumb now <laughs> no but I, you know it happens to me all the time because because english you know in england we spoke french for 300 years after william the conqueror they reckon that something like 65 percent of the words or the english words are actually of french or latin origin from France. So I do it all the time. I, I'll say things and I'll think, oh my God, yes, that is, that is the, that comes from the French. You, you just don't even realize how many words there are that are similar. It's incredible, isn't it? It is. It is. No, you're, you're right. I, I cannot wait to read your, your next two books, uh, My you. Four Seasons in France and Toujours la France. And uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to keep listening to your podcast because you two both are hilarious. So, <laughs> and I uh, really want to thank you for taking the time to come on and tell your story here today. Thank you, Greg. I have to get back to bricklaying now. <laughs> yes, yes, I know. I know. The bricklaying has been on my mind, so I won't keep you any longer. So everyone, that was the amazing Janine Marsh, and we'll see you all next week. Bye.